0: After three years of waiting, Governor White was desperate. The sun was fading fast, the men were restless, but even to postpone one more day would be agony. He needed to row ashore tonight. He had to find them. 18 men joined Governor White in two small boats and began to row ashore, leaving the Hopewell and the Moonlight at anchor, their drafts too deep for the shallow coastline. Excitement turned to exhaustion as the men's muscles grew tired. While the distance was just a few miles, endless months at sea had left them weak. But John White noticed neither their fatigue nor their frustration. He had eyes only for the land. His land. Suddenly, a stiff breeze touched his face, carrying a faint sound with it. A toddler's cry? He couldn't be sure, but it gave him hope. He tilted his head, hoping the sound would find him once more, but all was silent. White willed the boat faster. His legs bounced, his toes tapped. He vibrated with anticipation. Without an oar in his hand, he felt useless. To fill the void, he began to sing. One by one, the men joined him, singing of England, singing of home. The music gave them strength. It restored the defeated crew. And as they gently glided onto the beach, they eagerly jumped ashore, heaving the boats out of the water and onto the sand. Governor White fell to his knees and prayed to God. Looking up to the dark heavens above, he thanked his maker for finally bringing him back. And he once more asked for his favor. Please let them be safe, please, please. Now ashore, he faced a dense wall of trees and complete darkness. He had no choice but to wait for morning. It was an anxious night. He barely slept at all. And when dawn's first light broke, the governor began his search in earnest. After receiving no response to calls, drums, and trumpets, the men formed a search party, spreading out to find their countrymen. An hour passed, then another, and another. And after what seemed like ages, a young sailor cried out, Here! Here! I've found something! White rushed to the young man's side. At first, he saw nothing but trees. But the boy persisted, pointing to a large red oak tree with a wide piece of bark pulled away, revealing three letters. C-R-O. Crow. Governor White considered. What could it mean? He didn't recognize the word. It wasn't a known name. Who was Crow or where? Perplexed, White and the crew continued their search, moving south, until at last they reached the settlement. Or what was the settlement? The large clearing held the remnants of his colony. A few of the fort's pillars still stood, but not many. Heavy iron bars littered the ground. A rusted mound of cannonballs lay abandoned. The governor bent down and picked up a lead anvil, the head of a hammer, its handle long gone. Further into the clearing, others found a few nails, a large pot, some worn fence posts, but nothing more. Where were the buildings? He'd raised them himself. Where was the forge they'd painstakingly constructed? Suddenly remembering, John White rushed to the southwestern corner of the settlement. He ran to the base of a budding dogwood whose branches split into three just inches from the ground. This was where he had buried his chest filled with books and letters, his pens and ink. But upon his approach, he stopped in horror. His precious items were strewn about, spoiled by rain, overgrown with mold. Framed pictures, hand-painted maps, left abandoned, destroyed by the elements. Even his armor was eaten through with rust. But none of that mattered. The loss of his possessions was nothing to the loss of his family. Where were they? What had happened? Where was Eleanor? Where was Virginia? Another call from the crew brought White back from his thoughts. Slowly, he stood up and began to trudge through the debris, not bothering to retrieve the devastation. He walked toward the circle of men, and as he got closer, he saw it. There, on one of the few surviving gateposts, deeply carved within the wood, one word. But what could it mean? who or what or where was croatoan john white's heart sank I'm Erica. And I'm Caroline. And today we're bringing you another episode of the Piffy Chronicle, History with a Bite.
1: Our historical retellings are guaranteed to entertain.
0: We are here to prove that history is just another reality show, except this melodrama is unscripted.
1: So let's open up the book and jump in. In the time it takes you to drive to work, we promise to fascinate, surprise, And enlighten you.
0: All you have to do is listen. Are you hungry yet? I grew up with this story the legend of the lost colony. It wasn't just a historical mystery told at summer camp, it was taught in schools. Erica, would you give our perhaps unfamiliar listeners a cliff note version of The Lost Colony?
1: Absolutely. For those of you not from the Carolinas, here it goes. In 1587, a group of 120 English colonists crossed the mighty Atlantic Ocean to settle in Roanoke Island, which today is part of the Outer Banks in North Carolina. They were the first permanent English settlement in the New World. 37 years before Plymouth Rock and 23 years before Jamestown. The Roanoke Colony included men, women, and children who dared to dream of a new life in the new world. The colony's governor was a man named John White, and his faith was so great that he brought his pregnant daughter Eleanor and her husband Ananias Dare with him. And their child, his granddaughter, would be the first British baby born in the New World, fittingly named Virginia for England's Virgin Queen. The colony was intended as a port town that the English would use on their travels to and from the New World. It therefore followed that after a few months in Roanoke, Governor White returned to England for more supplies, confident that his colony was off to a good start. However, his passage back to America was delayed by, like, a lot. The Anglo-Spanish War meant no ships were available, and for three long years, he waited for the opportunity to return. Three years, people. When he finally set foot on the sandy soil of the Outer Banks once more, his colony and his family were gone even their homes had disappeared. All that was left was one word carved into a tree. Croatoan. No one knew what it meant, and the colonists were never heard from again.
0: I don't know if you've got chills, but I've got chills. It gives chills. I really think so. It's no wonder that this story is so beloved. Exactly. It's just gone.
1: The houses, the people, like the houses is what gets it for me. Like, what did you do? Just like... And we're going to talk about those houses.
0: Do not worry. Good.
1: Because what do you do? You don't have a bulldozer. Yeah. What do you do with all that
0: timber? Where did they go? Where did it go? (laughs) The colonists represent hope, bravery, and strength. And their mysterious end, like most mysteries, compels us to keep searching. Keep guessing. Born and raised in North Carolina, I have loved this tale my entire life, and I have followed it through the decades as new discoveries were made, and it was one of the first topics I knew that I wanted to cover on this podcast. But, in doing the research, I realized that much of the legend that you just read, the legend I grew up with, the one I was taught in school, is false. No. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. That's... Mm-hmm. But it's in, like, the history books. Uh-huh. Well, mm, Yeah. Let's start with the fact that Croatoan wasn't a mysterious word to John White. It was the name of an island 50 miles south of Roanoke and the home of the Croatoan tribe, which was on very good terms with the English settlers and had been for quite some time.
1: So the ominous word written in a tree was more like a colonial post-it with grocery store, be right back, written on it.
0: Maybe more like a change of address card that says, Hi, we've moved. Our new address is just 50 miles south with those friends that we always liked. Come and find us, please. Well, that is so polite.
1: Emily Post would be most thrilled to know that they're following proper social etiquette.
0: Emily Post to the rescue. (laughs) John White was expecting this note. It was all part of the plan. Before returning to England, he left explicit instructions that should the colony need to relocate, they were to carve the name of their new location on a tree, and if they were forced to leave under duress, they were to carve a cross below it. And and there wasn't a cross, right? Exactly, no cross. So John White, in his own writings, claims he felt confident he knew exactly where they'd gone And that it was a peaceful move. Oh, well, I guess episode over then?
1: (laughs) Not quite, not quite. So if I returned after three years to find my daughter and grandchild, not to mention my colony, of which I am the governor, missing, I think I would go and find it. It seems this should have been cleared up, oh, I don't know, about 432 years ago? But then what would
0: we get to cover in the podcast? You're right. The next logical step would be to sail the 50 miles south to Croatoan and find them. But? But a lot of things conspired against him. Mostly the weather. Oh, and that little thing. A threatened mutiny. No big deal. The weather conspires against
1: me all the time, but... Are you getting mutinies? (laughs) No, no mutinies in this household.
0: They know who the captain is. I'm really getting ahead of myself. I'd like to take a few steps back... And look at the big picture.
1: All right, where should we start?
0: Let's go back to 1577. A great year. A great year. (laughs) Queen Elizabeth I is 20 years into her reign and has turned her sights to the New World. The English in general were very late to the colonization game. Despite the fact that England's John Cabot was the first European to quote-unquote find the American mainland in 1497, England hadn't really poured a lot of resources into exploration and discovery, mostly because they were too busy with their little wars. Those pesky wars, they're always getting in the way of good time. They're so troublesome. I agree. Elizabeth realized that her former brother-in-law slash enemy, Philip II of Spain, was making bank on this whole new world exploration thing
1: and she wanted in and so yeah but not by marriage because he definitely asked her he really wanted to get those empires back together
0: he did and she was smart enough to know that he was a creep he had been a terrible husband so there is quite a bit of evidence that part of her desire to Start working toward the new world was a bit of revenge, not only for how he treated Mary, her half-sister, but also for his very blatant attempts to just take her crown. As one does. As one does. To that end, Elizabeth was presented with a document entitled, And I Am Serious, This Is The Actual Title. A Discourse How Her Majesty May Annoy the King of Spain by Fitting Out Ships of War Under Pretense of Letters Patent To Discover and Inhabit Strange Places My god, I love this. I love this so, so much. It's so literal! (laughs) I read this and burst out laughing. It is such a great title. And Elizabeth, who was well known for her sense of humor, was all in on this plan. It was a two birds, one stone situation. First, England wanted, as the title says, to annoy Spain. And second, England wanted money. And Spanish money was even
1: better. Someone else's money is the best money.
0: Oh, I agree. Absolutely. Yes. Have we mentioned we have a Patreon account?
1: Oh, I don't think we have, but you know what?
0: We would really love your support on our struggle bus. We always want to bring you the absolute best quality recordings and up-to-date historical information. If you are interested in helping support our little podcast, any little bit really helps our struggle bus.
1: Exactly. If you hop on that struggle bus, we can bring you the important work of accurate historical content.
0: With a bit of bite.
1: And a lot of sarcasm.
0: Oh yeah. And back to the story. On the guise of exploration and colonization, English ships would roam the seas, not for land and riches unknown, but for Spanish ships laden with treasures returning from their own pillages. Should they be caught in the act, the queen could deny any knowledge of piracy and be just as (gasps) appalled as everyone else that her noble Englishmen would dare to do such a dastardly thing.
1: (sighs) Oh, now that is... Pearl clutchingly good.
0: As I said, I think Elizabeth would have found this quite amusing. And there's a great quote from Richard Hakluyt, who was an English geographer among like 95 other professions at the time. <laughs> Erica, would you do the honors? Quote, if you
1: touch King Philip of Spain in the West Indies, you touch the apple of his eye. For take away his treasure, and his old bands of soldiers will soon be dissolved. His purpose defeated, his power and strength diminish, his pride abated, and his tyranny utterly suppressed. Unquote. That's definitely hitting him where it really hurts.
0: Yeah, I really liked the innuendos there. I thought that was great.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hackloy also elaborates on the Spanish treatment of the indigenous Americans, writing, quote, the Spaniards have exercised most outrageous and more than Turkish cruelties in all the West Indies whereby they are everywhere there become most odious unto them who would join with us and to those who would most willingly shake off their most intolerable yoke. I
1: hope most of us grew up learning of the terrible abuses of the native populations in the new world And certainly, even from our own episode on mummification, you can see the pain and suffering the Spanish caused in the Americas.
0: Yes, it is no secret that the Spanish ravaged the indigenous cultures of the Americas. I don't want to be unnecessarily graphic, but I also don't want to sugarcoat the horrors that they wrought. If you've got young listeners, you might want to skip the next 30 seconds or so. 3.5 million American Indians were burned alive hanged fed to dogs beheaded shot or killed by disease within the first 50 years of spanish exploration many of these murders were excessive beyond comprehension they were systematically sadistic and that's all i'm gonna say about that christopher columbus yeah that dude wrote to king ferdinand known as ferd the turd to many of our pithy listeners detailing purchases of young girls as sex slaves, citing that nine to ten-year-olds were in the highest demand. Nine to ten-year-olds?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it any wonder that American Indian groups protest Columbus Day each year? I mean, my gosh.
0: No. No. Historically, yeah, he's, he's pretty important. His voyage did change the course of history. But personally, he's a total P.O.S. Even his backers, as we've covered, Isabella and Ferdinand had him arrested and put in jail. Eh, Enough said. Indeed, moving on. Suffice to say, the Spanish approach was very cruel. And knowing this, the English put together a more humanitarian approach known as the Elizabethan model for colonization. Scholars like Richard Hockloyte believed Spain failed to colonize because of their continual abuses. Shocking. The English wished to colonize by trade and friendship, not Conquest. Though we do say this
1: with a massive grain of salt. Massive. Yeah, because to colonize
0: is to still take what wasn't theirs. The English way included learning the language of the people, befriending them through trade and desired items like copper, and of course, introducing them to Christianity. As colonizers do. As they do. So now we're off to see the new world, North America, here we come. You're such a dork. I know. I'm so sorry, listeners. (laughs) Before the fateful voyage of the lost colonists, there were three earlier reconnaissance missions starting in 1584. The English were looking for the perfect naval base in the new world from which they could attack the Spanish ships on their way back to Spain, loaded with plunder, including gold, silver, and sweet, sweet sugar. Ah, oh, that may just be the best thing to come out of the new world. Oh, I couldn't agree more as I sip my sweetened latte. Anyway, <laughs> only the Spanish were to be attacked. The English privateers would make boatloads of money.
1: Literally. I th- god, you're the worst. Oh,
0: come on. That wrote itself. It did. <laughs> Elizabeth had plausible deniability, and the Spanish would be financially and militarily weakened. The first of the five voyages lasted just six weeks, during which time the southern portion of the Outer Banks was decided as the perfect spot to sight and catch Spanish merchants. Indeed, this location would prove so effective that it was used by privateers and pirates for centuries. During this voyage, English and indigenous Americans met. For the very first time.
1: Oh wow, that is momentous.
0: Momentous. And curiosity honestly drove both sides. I can see why. Right? Three American Indians brought canoes alongside the anchored ship and one bravely ventured close enough that he was invited on board. And I do mean brave because I don't think I would have done that. Yeah, no, thank you. And then the Brits gave him food and drink, European clothing and gifts such as glass beads. And to show his gratitude, the man returned the following day laden with fish. Two large piles, one for each ship.
1: It really is nice to finally hear an account of a polite and generous meeting of cultures, and it is really painful how rare that is.
0: I was really heartened to learn this little tidbit. In fact, on this voyage, perhaps because they did not intend to settle, nor were they looking to pillage, the English made friends with two different tribes. The Croatoan. Oh, well that sounds familiar. Right? And the Sekotan. Less familiar. <laughs> Less familiar. We'll get there. These interactions were peaceful and friendly and gave the crew a good idea of what items were desirable for trade so they could come better prepared next time. Always good to know the market. Agreed. These eastern coastal tribes particularly desired iron tools, glass beads, copper, and swords. Copper ornaments were worn and valued by the political and tribal leaders as demonstrations of their greatness. I mean,
1: obviously, bling has denoted power for millennia.
0: And it was just about as valuable as bling today. Copper was equivalent to gold for the indigenous Americans. One copper pot was worth 50 deerskin, and for comparison... 10 deerskins was roughly equal to an English sailor's yearly salary. So
1: instead of three months' salary, we're talking five years of salary. I mean, that's one huge rock or pot, I guess.
0: Yeah, and the iron tools were just as valuable because it meant they no longer had to burn trees to the ground, they could just cut them down with an axe. Huge upgrade. This first voyage was a massive success. They established good trade relations, made friends with the indigenous Americans, and they even acquired ambassadors. Okay, ambassadors? That's what the English called them. In reality, the captain brought two Croatoan men named Manteo and Juanchese back to England as representatives of their people. The hope was that their presence would inspire investors to participate in a second expedition, which it did. And what happened to these ambassadors. They returned with the second voyage and acted as translators for the now seven ships coming to the New World. However, this second expedition was not as successful. While their mission was to begin hunting Spanish galleons, things went off course very quickly. A small incident occurred and it spiraled into a major confrontation. Oh, this sounds like high school... It's more like the Heathers, high school with deadly consequences. Oof, no thank you. After meeting with members of the Sekotin tribe, the English noticed that a single silver cup was missing. One. One cup. As revenge for this quote-unquote theft, the crew burned down the entire village and its neighboring grain fields. Okay, this is
1: biblically extreme. One cup for an entire village and all its food.
0: <sighs> Yeah, and guess what? The Secotan were pretty upset. What? You don't say. Can you believe? And this excessive retaliation led to another, and then another. The Secotan tribe declared to starve out the English by refusing to help supply them food. Wait, mm-hmm. let me get it straight. Mm-hmm.
1: These English idiots burned down the grain that was literally feeding them and then destroyed the village of those aiding them in this time of need for a silver cup.
0: Yup. That's it.
1: That is brazenly stupid. I thought so. And
0: clearly, the Sakotin thought so too. They caused a famine among the explorers, forcing the English to spread out and search for food, which allowed the Seikotin to pick them off one by one. But. Another one? Another but? Mm-hmm. Another but. The English were still friendly with the Croatoan tribe who, after all, were their friends and translators. Well, I mean, they didn't burn down their village. Thank God. And it turns out, and this is important, the Croatoan and the Seikotan tribes were not friendly. How, Sun Tzu. Oh, lordy. So even though the original conflict was completely ridiculous, it allowed the Croatoan to weaken their rivals, and so they happily helped the English kill the Seikotin chief and his entire council.
1: And then they ran away back to England before more could be done, right? Kind
0: of, yeah. Ugh. They ended up leaving behind a group of 20 men who had parted ways in this desire to find food due to the famine, and that leads us to... The third voyage. A rescue mission? It was meant to be. But they arrived too late. The 20 men had been found and attacked by the Sekotan, so the rescue ship, after finding no trace of them, just turned around and... Headed home.
1: Considering how long it takes to travel back and forth between the continents and a ship dependent on wind, it's not surprising that they didn't
0: make it in time. In fact, I'm kind of surprised they went at all. I was shocked that they tried. That was heartening to hear that they would try to go find those men. In a world of instant connection and same-day delivery, it's hard for us to even comprehend the patience of these colonists. And the next journey would require even greater fortitude because the fourth journey, and the one that we are focused on today, was the only one thus far meant to last. The first with women and children, the group planned to find a deep harbor around which they would set up a thriving port town. A deep
1: harbor to accommodate deep drafts of transatlantic
0: ships, I assume. That's correct. Look at you. Such a Navy wife. Such a Navy wife. Remember, the port town was meant to facilitate the Annoy Spain and steal their New World Plunder plan. So, large transatlantic ships were going to be their bread and butter. Three ships set sail, carrying 117 men, women, and children, as well as Mantio, the Croatoan ambassador, guide, and translator, who by now was on his second voyage to and from England. Again, Croatoan. I'm really struggling
1: with why this history is constantly portrayed as a mystery. Why are people
0: told that no one knew what the word meant? I have a few ideas, but be patient, we will get there. You know that's not my strong suit. I know, I'm so sorry. Go on. Governor John White named the land, and his granddaughter, Virginia.
1: You can never flatter a woman enough, especially when she's your queen. Take note,
0: fellas. And a man named Simon Fernando was enlisted as the pilot for this expedition. He was a former pirate. Always useful. And previous guide to the new world. On paper, he seemed like a good choice, but... But... Never trust a pirate. Honestly, that does seem pretty obvious. I would have thought so. Fernando was told to start in Roanoke and search for any sign of the 20 stranded men from the second voyage. Well, I thought they'd been killed. They had, they had. But the third voyage didn't know their fate. They just hadn't found a trace of them and then returned. And remarkably, two years later, the expedition leaders still held out hope of finding them. It's pretty admirable that they just kept searching. I guess. Except Fernando didn't intend Searching. I wouldn't have either. I don't know if that that's a character flaw here because... <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> he was told to look for them and then take the new colonists north to Chesapeake Bay area to establish a deep water port. Remember, the Outer Banks of North Carolina is a very shallow area and large transatlantic ships cannot reach the land. So he was supposed to look for the people and then go north for this deep water port. But instead, he sent the colonists ashore and basically was like, well, it's this or nothing. Um, rude. Yeah. He was a privateer, which is basically a pirate that is sanctioned secretly by the queen. His number one priority was money. And the longer it took for him to look for likely dead people, then sail up the coast searching for the perfect spot, and then allow these people time to, you know, settle into an unknown land, the less time he had to attack Spanish ships and make off with their plunder.
1: Priorities, obviously, Caroline. Priorities. You
0: get it. Yeah. So the 117 colonists were left with two choices. Return to England or make Roanoke, a not deepwater port, their home. And it's fair to say that his actions proved pretty devastating to this fledgling colony. Based on their mysterious disappearance, I think I'd have to agree here. John White, however, tried to make the best of it. He was heartened to be living so near to the Croatoan tribe and wrote, quote, Our coming was to renew the old love that was between us and them at the first, and to live with them as brethren and friends, unquote. And it was the Croatoans that told Blight the fate of those 20 Englishmen from the second voyage and their brutal end at the hands of the Sakotin tribe. Though remember, the Croatoans and the Secotans were enemies, so grain of salt and all of that. The English, however, didn't want to start their new endeavor surrounded by enemies, so they asked the Croatoan to please broker a peace with the Sakotin, promising to forgive the deaths of the 20 men if the Sekotan could forgive the unprovoked burning of their entire village. However, a peace was never reached. As far as I can tell, they never received a response either way. And silence is a very loud answer. Agreed. It's very telling. And all this back and forth has definitely led to some confusion. Many of the accounts of this historical mystery reference the animosity between the colonists and the indigenous Americans, erroneously conflating the two distinct tribes as just one. So, the carved word Croatoan in the tree has often been pointed to as an accusation, citing the already brewing bitterness. But they got the wrong tribe. Yes! And while it can be assumed that not everyone is familiar with the distinction between the two different tribes, John White certainly was. And he was a first-hand account of the colony's establishment and its disappearance. So it is so hard to see how his own words were just ignored. But... More on that later.
1: I've been hearing more on that later for a long time. You've got to stop dropping me off these cliffhangers. Okay, okay, we're almost there. We
0: just have to say goodbye to our colonists.
1: Goodbye, goodbye,
0: goodbye. (laughs) Whoa. I'm ready. John White stayed for a few months with the Roanoke colony. During this time, his granddaughter was born, Virginia Dare, the first English child ever born on American soil. Another baby was born a few weeks after that, and very happily for the English, Manteo was baptized as a Christian and gave the title Lord of Roanoke. But the villainous Fernando was impatient to get back to plundering. And John White was forced to leave with him, conscious that the colonists really did need reinforcements. He had to return to England. So despite the known treachery of this pirate slash privateer, White boarded Fernando's ship and sailed off, promising to return as soon as possible.
1: I know the Spanish-English war gets in the way, but how long did they, like, think
0: he'd be gone. I'm not an expert on 16th century seafaring, shockingly. You're not? I would say anywhere from six months to a year at least. As I said, these brave, brave souls had patience and they had forethought. It is well documented that before leaving, as we talked about, John White impressed upon his daughter and the others that should they find a better location or should they need to flee, they were to leave a note. Ah, the tree post-it. Exactly. He told them to carve their new location into a tree and to leave a cross under the location if they had to leave under duress. That's plain as day to me. Yep, I understood it pretty well. He then buried his chest of personal items and departed, leaving the colonists with two small ships and twenty long boats. That's a
1: lot of transportation.
0: It is. They were very much prepared to move locations if necessary. Either to a deeper port on the mainland, which is what they kind of wanted, or possibly to another island. And for our listeners, I do realize that this episode includes a lot of geography. So if you're a visual learner like myself, please visit our website, thepithychronicle.com to find all of our show notes, which along with detailed bibliographies also include a number of maps to help orient you.
1: Always love a map.
0: I do too. And I have really put in the time with Google map screenshots to really help you get the modern coastline, but I also included those maps that were hand-drawn and painted by John White himself, whom I might add was sincerely talented. Oh, an artist and an explorer? What a renaissance man. We know all too well that people in the arts do need a backup plan in case the whole artiste thing goes to pot.
1: Not sure Explorer or Podcaster counts as a stable choice, but
0: hey, here we are. (laughs) Okay, fine. All right, rabbit holes, Pippi, Caroline, no. (laughs) Back to our soon-to-be-lost colonists. They are left to their own devices while Governor White sails to England and then tries to gather supplies and requisition another ship to take him back. But those pesky Spanish got in the way. While the the annoy-the-Spanish strategy was paying off, the war at home... England, that is, was taking a toll. All the ships were needed for the war. John White tried desperately first in 1588 and then in 1599. He did eventually manage to find an available ship, but just a few miles from England, they were ambushed, and White himself was stabbed in the head first with a sword and then with a pike before being shot in the butt. Wow, this return journey really is a pain in his ass. (laughs) Yeah, but seriously, who gets stabbed in the head twice, shot in the, as he says, buttocks, and then lives to tell the tale, and continues to look for people? So the ship won the fight, but they had so many wounded that it was forced to return to England. And then, of course, White needed some time to recover from his many injuries. (laughs) But you can't keep a good man down. He still couldn't enlist English ships, but he did find a loophole. An old friend, Captain Spicer, was leading raids against the Spanish-held Caribbean, and he agreed to drop white off at Roanoke to check on the colony when he returned to England. Third time's the charm? Mm, We'll see. Uh. This voyage had a lot of ups and downs. They were very successful at the raiding part, taking, according to the impatient white, quote, an enormous amount of time pillaging the Spanish, unquote. But when they finally arrived where he'd left his colony, it was terrible weather. And as we've covered multiple times... Ugh, the water wasn't deep enough. Exactly. So they had to take smaller rowboats into shore. But the conditions were awful. And on their first attempt to reach land, they hit rough seas, and seven Englishmen drowned, including Captain Spicer. Oh no! Yes. And this was a turning point. Spicer's men were tired and wanted to go home. They'd also just lost their leader and the only man who had actually agreed to this extra and unnecessary stop on the way home. They wanted to go ASAP. White practically pleaded with them, so they gave it one more shot. Upon coming into port, they were hopeful. They sang English songs and called out to the people, playing trumpets and drums. Oh, but no response? No response. As I detailed in the beginning, they were forced to wait till morning to continue their search, but as they walked the land, they found nothing just the letters C-R-O in a tree, followed by an empty settlement site. I've been
1: wondering about that. How could it all be
0: empty? Was it burned down? Where did the buildings go? It's not like they had bulldozers. That is an excellent question, and certainly one that's downplayed in the whole mystery retelling. The houses were gone, and there was no sign of fire or attack. No bodies, no remains, no nothing. Weird or so telling. Tell me more. The homes built by the new colonists were very easily taken down. The frames were held together by joints with wooden pegs and the walls consisted of woven branches similar to a basket and then covered with mud and clay. The most laborious part of the build was hewing the trees into square beams to make the frame. Therefore, it would be easier to disassemble the homes transport the raw prepared materials and raise them again rather than
1: start fresh. So the fact that there were no homes was a strong sign that they'd relocated. Exactly. And to do so would have required time, which doesn't indicate an unplanned or forced departure? Precisely. And then, upon finding the word Croatoan with no cross to signal distress, John White assumed they'd freely left the original settlement and went to the island of their own friends and neighbors, the Croatoan, 50 miles south of their own accord. By
0: George, I think you've got it. According to White, quote, The next morning, it was agreed to weigh anchor and go for the place at Croatoan, where our people were. And the very next day, they did just that. But, fatefully, they hit absolutely terrible weather again. seems like weather has been really problematic in this story. It seems like, honestly, everything was against this return journey from the start. But this poor man, he pushed through as much as he could. But they were blown roughly 23 miles out to sea, and all but one anchor was torn from the ship. So the crew finally reached a breaking point and said, absolutely no more. They threatened mutiny if they were forced to try again. And in the end, the ship actually wrecked in Ireland on the way home. It was a rough journey from start to finish. And John White never had the chance to try again. He died three years later. In his last letter to Queen Elizabeth's geographer, the lovely Richard Hockloyd, he wrote, quote, I greatly joyed that I had found a certain token of their being safe at Croatoan, which is the place where Manteo was born and the people of that island are our friends. That feels
1: very confident.
0: I think so. Though on my deathbed, I might want to reassure myself as well rather than speculate the worst. But either way, with him died any ambition to return for the colonists. No one else went looking. They just left them there. The Spanish-English War didn't officially end until 1603 with Elizabeth's death. So that certainly hindered things. Two expeditions were sent to find them in 1602 and 1603. But the first evidently ignored their orders and did their own thing instead of looking for the colonists. Rude. Yeah. According to what I found, they actually just collected sassafras and then turned around and went home. How sassy. Mm -hmm. Let's go get some
1: hallucinogenic plants and then leave.
0: Pretty much. And the second chose to search the Chesapeake Bay area, which was again, north of the Roanoke colony settlement, likely working off of White's theory that they'd willingly left their original location. But rather than thinking they'd gone to Croatoan 50 miles south, they were hoping that the colonists had in fact managed to get a deep water port, which would have been north, but again, There was no trace found, and we only have their say as to what happened. So after one of that expedition's leaders was killed, they just turned around and came home. And upon the crew's arrival, they found that their queen was dead, and her cousin King James I was now in charge. And he had very different plans for the New World. Which means the next big expedition was that of Jamestown. Another brown-nosing opportunity. Mm Mm-hmm. There was just no hiding it. It was really obvious. So... You might be wondering, why didn't the Jamestown colonists look for their fellow Englishmen? Uh, now I am. Well, they did, sort of. They didn't go looking, but they did hear of them. In 1607, it is recorded that Chief Powhatan's brother, and Chief Powhatan, by the way, was Pocahontas's father, which is another episode for another day. We definitely need to clean up that whole Disney mess. Oh yeah, agreed. Anyway, the chief's brother told the Jamestown explorers that the 1587 colonists, the quote-unquote lost colonists, were in fact alive and living happily with indigenous Americans. His description of their location matches perfectly with Croatoan, or modern-day Hatteras Island. Holy cow, but they didn't go find them? No. Because... First off, it was 20 years later, so there's that. And second, the Jamestown explorers were busy trying to you know, survive themselves. True, that's not exactly an easy life. No. But third, and most importantly, the English were actually quite upset to hear that their countrymen had chosen to live with and assimilate into the indigenous American culture. The eye roll that you just did, so appropriate, agreed. Today, we know that this racist and bigoted view of other cultures is unfounded and unacceptable. But at the time, the English viewed the American Indians as, quote, less than themselves. Many historians have argued that the Jamestown settlement saw the Roanoke settlement's fate as, quote-unquote, disgraceful. That's painful to hear.
1: But one of the reasons we produce this podcast is to educate people about history so it won't be repeated.
0: Yes, While I think it's pretty amazing that these two cultures might have managed to overcome their differences and form a singular society that spanned their two drastically different worlds, the uninformed settlers did not. More than likely, they chose to deny the colony's fate rather than try to find them. It's so sad to deny what could have been the very first example of the American melting pot. Mm Mm-hmm. Further evidence supports this. In 1701, explorer John Lawson was sent to survey the indigenous tribes in Carolina. North and South were only one colony at the time. And he found some very interesting evidence on Hatteras Island, otherwise known as Croatoan, including gray-eyed American Indians who wore English-style clothing. That feels significant. Indeed it does. The people even mentioned Sir Walter Raleigh by name, whom I have ironically, being from Raleigh, left out of this episode because while involved, he wasn't essential to our story, but his name was on the charter for many of these explorations. And he urged for both the 1602 and 1603 attempted rescue missions to find them. So these gray-eyed American Indians using his name, a name that they should not otherwise have known, seems as you said, pretty significant. And here are Lawson's own words. Erica, would you please? Quote, it is probable that this settlement miscarried
1: for want of timely supplies from England. And we may reasonably suppose that the English were forced to cohabit with them for relief and conversation.
0: I love that second bit for conversation. I mean, it makes sense. It's just such a funny way to put it.
1: Quote, and that in process of time, they conformed themselves to the manners of their Indian relationships, and thus we see how apt human nature is to degenerate. Unquote. Uh, uh, uh-uh. I was really into this
0: quote until that last word. Yeah. What was that? It's incredibly racist. And I wouldn't include it if I didn't think it was essential in explaining why the Lost Colony is thus described. Clearly Lawson found significant evidence of the Roanoke settlers, and also very clearly he was horrified by their assimilation. And he wasn't alone. A Reverend John Ermstone, just nine years later, also found a group of persons, quote, who are half Indian and half English. And he referred to them, again, very sadly, as, quote, an offense to my own. He wrote of his, quote, grave doubts that the kingdom of heaven was designed to accommodate such people. Oh, that is awful. Awful! It is gross. It's rude. It's nasty. And it's very telling. Why were the colonists called lost when they were pretty well documented? Because lost was a much more palatable word than assimilated to the English at the time. Based on everything you've
1: said, I feel like lost colony isn't an appropriate moniker. It's more like
0: abandoned colony. I can't argue with that. There are other theories, though. So even though I think the primary sources point toward assimilation with the Croatoan people, we do need to cover, as we say, our history-loving asses. All right, so what else have you got? Relatively recently, there was a big discovery on a very old map. The Virginia Pars map was produced somewhere between 1584 and 1590 by our very own Governor John White. And yes, it is in the show notes. You can look at how beautiful it is. The map is a remarkably accurate and detailed image of the coastal area from the Chesapeake Bay all the way down to Cape Lookout. It includes a few familiar locations, specifically Croatoan which is clearly written at the same spot where Hatteras Island can be found today. Again, I'm struggling with the term lost. But in 2012, the First Colony Foundation and the British Museum announced an exciting discovery. They found two paper patches applied to the original map. The first patch alters the inland coastline of what is now North Carolina, and the second covers a large symbol of red and blue, which denotes a fort, they think. Additionally, under the second patch, there's a red circle, which is believed may have represented a village. Historians are now hypothesizing that perhaps this inland fort may be where the colonists resettled after abandoning the Roanoke coast. It's been guessed that this was a, quote, secret emergency location. Like a plan B, right? Exactly. And that it was deliberately hidden because of the whole deniability issue for Queen Elizabeth. The idea of a port town to be used as a base for an English privateering operation against the Spanish was a state secret, despite the Annoy the Spanish document. Perhaps the patches were intentional to keep this location from the public and from foreign agents that might have been at court. Oh my gosh, that is so very
1: intriguing. A 16th century covert operation and then a literal cover-up? Conspiracy theories are the best. It
0: is a great story. Oh, I love it. There is another historical argument that says no individual indigenous village could have supported such a large group of 117 people. So some say that upon leaving Roanoke, they needed to split into smaller groups. So perhaps some did go to Croatoan, while others might have headed inland to this secret site. And it should be noted that the newly discovered location is at a very strategic spot and would have made perfect sense as a base of operations.
1: Okay, I like that too. I can see where splitting up might have been necessary.
0: Yes, but that's assuming that there were still 117 colonists by the time they decided to move. More than likely, sad though it may be, many of them would have perished because presumably they wouldn't have left the area if they were doing well.
1: Okay, that's logical too. Makes sense. (sighs) I think there is
0: some mystery. For me, the 18th century findings of assimilated cultures in the Hatteras area are very telling. I have trouble looking past those, especially because both of the explorers were horrified by the very notion. Why would they make it public or write it down if it wasn't absolutely true?
1: Yeah, because they were so embarrassed by the idea of assimilation, it does seem strange to include it in their published works if it wasn't absolutely factual.
0: Precisely. But, this map with its stealthy patches is very intriguing. And the notion of splitting up in hopes of at least one group surviving also makes sense. I want to leave you with some tourism information. As a proud North Carolinian, I want to highlight the production The Lost Colony, which is celebrating its 85th year this summer. It is an outdoor theater production, and it is lauded as the number one attraction of the North Carolina Outer Banks. I myself have seen it many times, and I am proud to say that I have a number of former voice students who have graced the stage of this historic and truly impressive performance. And many friends have been involved with its production as well. For the Hatteras area, the Lost Colony production is an enormous boon to the local economy. I think 85 consecutive years of the same show says a lot about its ability to captivate.
1: From an arts management perspective, I can definitely see how Lost Colony would sell
0: far, far better than Abandoned Colony. Exactly. This production is one of the main reasons that this mystery theory still prevails. A lot of research that I presented today was from a new book only released in 2021 by Scott Dawson. I think his arguments are compelling and strong. I would not have included them otherwise. But many of the historical societies on the island are very much against his interpretation. Okay, why? Personally, I think it's because everyone loves a mystery. And for a tourist-based economy, replacing lost with found or abandoned or assimilated isn't good for the box office. So you're purporting the mystery is kept alive for monetary purposes? Proposing but not purporting.
1: Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. I still think it's sketch. And with that, I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And lost, or found, or assimilated, (laughs) or abandoned, we are pithily yours.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects, hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, submarine warfare, neuroscience, or cat husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer, just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!